The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. What changed in the upper room? This is going to be the first part of a, I don't know, three, four, five part series. I'm going to try to keep them brief, down to a thousand words each, maybe two thousand. 15, 20 minutes, because I want to go over point by point what it is that the New Testament and the Bible seems to teach concerning the authority, the worship, the ministry, and the witness of the Church of Jesus Christ. So I ask again, what changed in the upper room? Part one is going to be the world transformation of worship, ministry, and government after the cross of Jesus Christ, that is the atonement of God's people, and after Pentecost, that is God coming to dwell in his people, making us his sanctuary. That changes everything to do with how his people and how the world is to govern itself. It opens up new vistas in government. So let's begin. For 2,000 years, the church has organized around a form of worship that focuses the on a small group of men who lead it. Whether you like it or not, that is what worship looks like. The titles aren't important, whether you call them father or pastor or elder. The thing to notice is whether it's Anabaptist or Orthodox or Roman or Protestant or Congregational or Independent or Coptic or Nestorian or even most house churches. <clears throat> worship involves gathering together to watch a few men reenact rituals of the faith to sing, to pray, and to invite the congregation at, at particular points to do these things with them, and to teach in rooms whose every feature forces the congregation of God to focus like a theater on these men. A theory of government grew up symbiotically with this focus in worship. To set these few apart as a separate class of people from the onlookers and grant this class of rulers the following powers to enforce their rule. The first power is they control the content and the activities of worship. The second power is they control the finances of the congregation. The third power is they have the power to use private examinations to control who is admitted to fellowship and they can expand these exams into trials of which they are the exclusive judges and so control who is expelled from the congregation or who is disciplined in some way. They control who can and cannot be baptized or partake of the Lord's table. If these men are challenged on any point of control or of doctrine or of sin, this is the fifth point, appeal can only be made to those men who are the elite set over us or to other members of their organization of leaders in other churches. They are not to be judged by any members of the congregation. 
because those members have only one calling in terms of the governing of the church, and that is to submit to them, not to challenge them. Now, there are two central dividing lines between Jesus and the apostles versus all church governments after them until today. The first dividing line is the creation of a class of leaders who are functionally defined by priestly or representative powers to control the church, indeed to be the church, as I've listed in 1 through 5 above. Now you may find that list offensive, but what I would challenge you to say is, which one of those things aren't true? And even if maybe you happen to be in a church where one or two of them isn't true, taken together, which one of those is true? Those are the powers of control. Now the second point of these powers of control is they're inaccessible to any Christian not admitted or ordained to that class of leaders except by submitting to their judgment and rule. That's how they get in on the judgment and rule of the church. You agree with the elders. From the fall of man into sin to the cross and Pentecost, all government theory has revolved around the idea that there are two choices, strong central government, which can be abused and unpleasant, but it makes progress in life possible and is the foundation of all civilizations that have ever existed. And social chaos, rape, the destruction of all morality and property and every good thing that results from anarchic lawlessness. From the fall to the cross and to Pentecost, everyone has known that to rule, you must give the ruler the power to exercise his will and to require the submission of those he, he rules. For instance, to be the master of the house, you must control the house. To be the master of the family, you must control the family. To be the master of the marriage, you must control the marriage. To be master of the city or country, you must have the power to control it. And of course, if you do anything, such as I will be doing in this next series, to, to say, hey, maybe the New Testament opens up new vistas of how God's leaders are to lead, immediately you will hear that people left to themselves will take will become a mob and literally consume themselves just like God promised uh, the day they rebelled against God that they would die. Now I'm not here to adjust or tweak this idea and provide a better way for men to rule through the control of the organizational powerpoints, those one through five that are listed above. I already think that the Presbyterian Church government is brilliantly successful in its application of that pre-cross, pre-Pentecost, post-fall understanding of how power is to be accessed and applied organizationally by selecting the greatest to safeguard the people from the abuses <clears throat> of leaving them to themselves. However, after the cross and Pentecost, however, there is a change in the priesthood and a change in the priests and therefore a change in how God's people are to govern themselves. We are no longer bound to that dreadful martial law dilemma to choose between authoritarianism and anarchy, but more there is a change in how people are to worship and to conduct their business, no longer bound by the necessity of a central government to control them by external force so they don't consume themselves with anarchy. It's a freedom they cannot endure, we are told. Well, that is true. Before the cross, before Pentecost, that was true. But you see, instead, the scripture teaches that God forgave their sins and filled them with the spirit and the law word of God. This changes all of history. 
There is only one priest and one king who represents God people, God's people. That's Jesus Christ. There are no non-priestly, non-kingly members of the Church of Jesus Christ. All Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. All Christians are kings. They are a royal priesthood. Any Christian is more equipped by God to do whatever priestly or kingly function is appropriate to be done on behalf of anyone else through ministry than any other priest or king ever was from the dawn of time to the end of time. There is no elevated class of those who possess official powers to do on behalf of others what only they with their official powers are elevated to do. In Christ, God's people fulfill Moses' command to the king. He said, write a copy of this law so that your heart will not be lifted above your brethren. That law is now written on our hearts as the 10th commandment requires, transforming our hearts. In Christ, God's people filled with Moses' prayer, fulfill Moses' prayer that all God's people would be filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesy. The presence of God dwells in us, interpreting his law word to us and applying it to the world through us. In Christ, we are the congregation of kings and priests who will judge all creation. But also in Christ, each individual member of God's congregation has access to all power in heaven and on earth to disciple the nations and baptize and teach them. In Christ, however, the servant is not greater than his master. As long as we have this earthly ministry, as Christ had his earthly ministry, Christ's service is the pattern of how he earned authority in earth. So too servanthood is our road to authority and the true power that transforms the earth. True power is not found in your ability to dictate policy. True power is found in your ability to live out what good policy is and call upon God to, to lift up the words and the life that you offer him so that others see that God's hand is in you. That is true power. That is discipleship. Now these realities are the centerpiece of all that was said and done in the upper room in that first generation church. The upper room is, is the prelude to the cross and Pentecost. It is the regulative principle transforming worship, ministry, and government. The shape our gatherings take will be a sure sign of what our purpose is. If our purpose is to exalt the authority of a few men, then a good way to do it is to build large rooms with fixed seating, facing an elevated stage and a pulpit, specially lighted to watch the elevated men who control all aspects of worship and all aspects of your life anytime they want to get together with you and examine you. To facilitate their control, they have reduced God's meal to a ritual, voted themselves full control of who has access to the grace of God by submitting to them. Over the centuries, this structure cannot help but embed in all who participate that they are the functional rulers of the church to whom the rest submit in order to be a part of what's going on. There are congregations and elders who have overcome this stumbling stone, and I can think of several in my own experience, but the high place to pre-cross Pentecost worship and government remains canonized in their order of worship. In other words, they do better than they explain what they do. By contrast, the form of worship in the apostolic church was designed around a meal table, during which time the corporate fellowship business discipline teaching of the church takes place. 
It was first seen in the upper room, where Jesus was completely comfortable lounging with his friends on low couches, even having one man lying with his head on his chest. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time in your life you ever lay around on the floor with somebody's head on your chest or vice versa? No, don't rush past this scene. You walk into the upper room and there you find the remains of a large meal, as a worship meal, proclaiming an end to the authoritarian slavery, which Jesus has just transformed that meal into the liberating meal of the new covenant. He is getting ready on behalf of his people to take them through the Red Sea. All around the Lord of the universe, there in that room, there are half a dozen animated conversations of his friends. One of them is lying with his head on Jesus' chest chest, which means Jesus was not sitting up or even propped up on an elbow, but lying flat crosswise to him. The conversation is so animated that they can't even follow it when Jesus points out to them that he's going to be betrayed and points out the betrayer. How many times have you read that story and wondered how stupid these disciples must be? They weren't stupid. There was, there was talk going on all over the place. The conversation does turn serious, but it is not a solemn occasion. There's a great deal of difference between solemnity and seriousness. It is a large group of people who have lived together for the last two years attended to by people who traveled with them. Yes, it has its solemn moments, but they grow out of a large meal, the freedom, the freedom meal of Israel, transformed by the fact that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is transforming that meal into a meal that represents the freedom from all that the fall and the slavery in Egypt and authoritarian governments and authoritarian worship represent. There is no pageant. There is no focus on one person designed into a gathering. This isn't to be commemorated. Um, by, by people reenacting it somehow, as, 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 as if the reenactment um, is, is, is going to gain grace. The only focus comes in that group, there in the upper room, when someone has something to say that people find worth turning to and worth listening to. And for much of the time, that person was not even Jesus. You don't believe me? Go read all of the upper room accounts and notice how much was missed by each gospel. Some of the most important things in the Bible, chapters of them, was missed by all but John, who lay with his head on Jesus' breast. Isn't it interesting that John also is the one who, 40 years later, recorded those wistful words of Jesus as he thought back on that moment in the upper room, and the early years of his people rushing from house to house, excited, eating together, infecting an entire city, and in time infecting an entire world, resolving huge conflicts, not by trials, but by entire congregations, gathered together as at Corinth, Galatia, Acts 15, to resolve these, the, the, these issues, the congregation. He longed for his chicks to gather under his wings, which is what the gathering of his people could be if they would not try to ritualize everything and turn it into a pageant that singles out a few men and made them the ruling priests by default, controlling the PowerPoints of the church as if God's people were incompetent, needing a guardian ad litem, as if they were small children. He said to them, You have left your first love. That was in the book of Revelation. Such worship and such government enables a ministry whose garment a hungry world can't wait to grab hold of, as is predicted in Zechariah 8.23. God's leaders turn their back 
on trials, administrations, budgets, even caring for widows. They are focused exclusively on the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through their word and life to persuade, mold, lead, and guide a congregation to self-controlled maturity in God's word, dwelling richly in their life. If discipline is needed, they simply say it. And if they're correct, God backs it up. In some cases, Peter is found to be wrong. In other cases, people fall dead at his feet. You see, Ephesians chapter 1 and 4 through 11, these leaders are not involved in the pre-cross Pentecost business of Gentile-style authoritarian leadership through controlling the congregation administratively and then calling it, oh, this must be discipleship. This must be ministry and spiritual and service. But it's a name only. Theirs instead is the ministry of bearing witness and to the word and prayer, to disciple the nations, to walk in the works God has prepared for them from the foundation of the world, as Paul said in Philippians 2. In such a gathering, it emphasizes Matthew 15, 18, where the, the, the individuals of the congregation, controlled only by the Holy Spirit, speaking in the word, are the final court of appeal, where they can judge en banc, as a whole, or even in groups of two or three. Wherever two or three of you are gathered together, there I'm in your midst. Whatever you ask, I'll give you. This isn't some high priestly function of an elder. The congregation has the final ethical judgment to agree or disagree, follow or correct anyone set apart to lead. As priests of the Most High God, submission is the gift of each member of the congregation to those who are set apart to lead on any particular point of their leadership. Submission is not their obligation to the congregation. They are the priestly, kingly servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the slaves of the traditions of the elders. They call no man father or rabbi, nor do they ordain any man to such an office. Broadly speaking, from Genesis 4 on, the world's argument is this. You cannot have rule without power to enforce your rule. And that power is derived from your organization by virtue of the control that those in charge have of the key points one through five above. This power was granted by Christ to Peter and the apostles and their ruling heirs alone, according to Matthew 16. You, Peter, I'm going to build my church on this rock. Now, Catholic and Protestant and a Baptist and Reformed, this is the argument of all church officials one way or the other. This is what it boils down to. This is the argument also of a Gentile world that is not grasped in Pentecost. To all we do, the significance of the cross in Pentecost to all we do, but instead wishes to keep the business of ruling God's congregation, as it always has been since the fall, safely apart from the transforming intervention of God in the cross and by the sending of His Holy Spirit. God did not give his only begotten son to die so that autocrats, whether priests or kings, the elite, could keep their controlling power over his people who are now full of his spirit of love, power, and self-control. Self-control, of course, is self-government. This is the dilemma, then, of the modern church. <laughs> well, it's really not the dilemma of the modern church. It's the dilemma of anybody who's paying attention. For 2,000 years, we have ruled and worshipped as if there is a special class of leaders who may lead by the power granted them through controlling the PowerPoints of the church, as if it were any other organization. But if there is no elevated class of kings or priests, then how can those who rule the church rule? Are we left with anarchy? 
What does it mean to be authorized by God to exercise authority if you cannot control those over whom you have authority? Is this nonsense Jesus spoke? Or did Jesus direct us to the true power that only faith can see, to which the world is blind, and those who adopt the ways of the world to rule are equally blind? How do you do it? How can you rule without the power to control? It is this conundrum that drives people either towards anarchy, there are so many people who get fed up with the fact they can't find the sort of rule in the church, also in scripture. They don't find it in scripture. It is this conundrum that drives people towards saying, well, we can't have anarchy, we've got to have authoritarian control. As if Jesus did not die, as if Jesus and the Father did not send their Holy Spirit. So, for the next time you listen to this, read Luke 22, verses 25 and following. Well, read all the upper room passages and read all the parallel passages and the events of that evening and all the Gospels. I want to address this problem of can you rule without having control over the people over whom you have rule? God bless you as you think about this. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.